Well, let's pray and ask for God's help to understand this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the richness of your word and, and the promises that you have made. Um, and I pray that as we look at this, we would have a deeper understanding of what it means to live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you heard that passage of Scripture read, uh, if you were able to, to track with it all the way through to the end, uh, what thoughts were going through your mind? Um, I mean, besides, wow, this is a really long passage of Scripture. Um, what, what were you feeling as you listened? I mean, these, these stories are epic, aren't they? I mean, I wonder if a lot of us felt something like this, that, that these stories are maybe marginally in- interesting. Maybe some of them are even inspiring. But, but this is the stuff of, of big-budget movies, right? I mean, there have been movies made out of the stuff that's in these stories. Noah, the Prince of Egypt, the Ten Commandments. I mean, this is, this is epic kind of stuff. And, and many of the accounts of faith listed here in this passage probably feel almost like fairy tales to most of us. I mean, whether we consider ourselves Christians or not, I mean, these things are, are ancient, they're dramatic, they, they seem so far off. If you're anything like me, it's like this doesn't seem like it really relates to my life when, when I'm stuck in traffic trying to get home on, on 435 or I'm trying to take care of the, the kids or the boss is, is yelling at you or, or you're, you're feeling lonely and bored on a Friday night or you're studying for finals and, and waiting for SAT and ACT results to come back. I mean, does this text really feel like that? And I think when we look at a passage like Hebrews 11 and we read of all of these people highlighted here, I think we can think to ourselves, if people, if the people in this passage, if their lives, if that's what it means to have faith, if if that's what the life of faith looks like, (laughs) I'm pretty sure I don't have faith like that and I'm not sure I can or, or ever or will. But if we just look at the characters the people, the accounts, the stories outlined in this text, and, and, and what we, we, we come away with is, I just need to, be tr- to try harder to be more like them, then, then we will have missed the entire point of the passage. And indeed, we will have missed the very thing that enabled them to live the lives that they did live. You see, at the core of this text is an answer to the question, what does it take to please God? What does it take to please God? And there's one thing that pleases God. And and without this one thing, even our greatest accomplishments for good aren't pleasing to him. And that one thing is faith. You see, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But but what is faith? How does faith work? And that's what the author is giving us a hint at here in this text. And and this morning, as we look at this passage, we're going to ask three questions We're going to ask, what is faith? How does faith work? And then lastly, who does faith work? So so what is it? How does it work? And then who does faith's work? And and many of you here this morning would consider yourself people of faith. I mean, you would consider yourself Christians. But I know there are those of you here this morning who um, are probably uncomfortable with putting yourself in that category, at least in the category of Christian faith. And you may be sitting here thinking that religion has always seemed a bit soft, a bit squishy uh, to me, and you'd rather not spend a lot of time thinking about stuff that you you can't um, really know for sure. And maybe you thought faith is just sort of, it's just an easy out for Christians to to talk about things that they, they can't prove or that we can't know for sure. 
But for some reason, you are here with us this morning, and, and we're so glad that you're here with us this morning. And, and I just want to ask two questions of you as we engage in this, maybe to help you as we go through here. And, and first, um, maybe you don't believe there is a God, but if you do, um, wouldn't it be nice to know uh, what it takes to please him? Um, and then second, if there a possibility that your ideas about faith are not accurate, and that maybe you've bought into a caricature of what real faith is. And I think all of us, whether we're, we're skeptics or not, tend to have caricatures of what real faith is about. And the, that's why we need to begin with the question, what is faith? And, and the text doesn't waste any time getting there. So if you look back at the beginning of the passage, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the author just jumps right in and he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then down in verse 6, we read, And without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And there are three things uh, that we need to learn about the nature of, of biblical faith here. And the first thing, maybe it seems a bit counterintuitive, but the first thing we need to notice here is that faith admits uncertainty. And faith admits uncertainty. Because if you notice the language of verse 1, faith has to do with things that are, that are hoped for, things that are unseen, not with those things that we have or, or things that are seen. It deals with things that are hoped for, things that are unseen. And, and when you really begin to think carefully about life, there are actually very few things that we can know with absolute psychological certainty. And, and if we limit ourselves to what we can know with absolute psychological certainty, we, we are going to not have very much to base our lives on. So faith has a humble posture. It, it recognizes that, that psychological certainty simply isn't possible in most areas of life, especially the ones that matter most, like love and relationships. More on that in a little bit. So yes, faith admits uncertainty, but also faith believes with confidence. So faith admits uncertainty, but it believes with confidence. Again, notice the language of verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but, and it's the conviction of things not seen. So assurance and conviction, these are words that are brimming with confidence. So faith is not something that, that is, that is uh, just a, a weak idea or, or gives us nothing to cling on to. No, no faith is about assurance and conviction it's brimming with confidence. And, and I love how one scholar puts this. He's commenting on this phrase, assurance of things hoped for. He writes that faith celebrates now the reality of future blessings. That faith celebrates now the reality of future blessings. You see, faith makes future promises of God that have yet to be fulfilled have as much of an impact on your life as present realities. Faith takes what is, is yet to be seen and makes it have, it, it allows you to build your life around things that aren't yet present. It allows you to treat them as present realities. Now, now that may seem a little abstract, maybe even a little bit over-spiritual. So, so let me just say this. This is actually the way that we live our lives in ordinary things all the time. So, so for example— um, when, when Christ Community hired me uh, to serve on the staff here at Brookside, um, they made a promise to me that on the 1st and the 15th of every month, they would deposit a certain amount of money into my checking account. And, and that promise of, of future income radically reshaped the present. It, it gave me the confidence to, to take out a mortgage, to purchase a home. And, and in that closing room, when we were signing the papers on that mortgage, it was an act of faith 
celebrating now the, the reality of future blessings, Lord willing, of, of paychecks for many years to come, about, about 30 years actually, uh, to come of, of future paychecks. So see, we, we exercise faith. You exercise faith every time you put money in the bank or, or you hand your keys to a valet or you get a cavity filled. <laughs> and in none of these things can we be absolutely certain that the bank won't collapse or that the valet won't just take off with your car or that the dentist won't drill the wrong tooth. But you might say, well, well Bill, stop, stop here, because yeah, that's true, but it doesn't really require that much faith, because I know my bank. I mean, I've been with them for years. They're, they're really well capitalized. They're conservative lending. I mean, it's not that much of an act of faith. Or, or I know, I've been to this restaurant lots of times. In, in fact, the valet who takes my car is, is my, my best friend's son. Or... This dentist, I've been to going to them for years. They've filled thousands of cavities, including several of mine. And this gets to the heart of our misunderstanding about what faith is. You see, we tend to see faith as a blind leap without any evidence, or perhaps a leap in the face of evidence or or reason to the contrary. But this is not what, what biblical faith is. It, the songwriter who wrote the Oscar-winning song, Let It Go, for the, the musical Frozen, we actually watched it a few weeks ago, um, also wrote songs for the slightly less uh, family-friendly um, Broadway musical, The Book of Mormon. I don't know if you're familiar with this, this musical, but in, in the play, there's a song uh, that the songwriter write, wrote called I Believe, and, and it captures this distorted view of faith well, I think. And so this is one of the courses. I just want to read you part of one of these courses. Uh, it says, I believe that God has a plan for all of us. I believe that plan involves me getting my own planet, and I believe that the current president of the church, Thomas Madsen, speaks directly to God. I'm a Mormon, and dang it, Mormons just believe. Um, so this is, this is a line from the play. Kind of, It's a mocking send-up of, of Mormonism, certainly, but it's a million miles away from what the Bible speaks about when it means faith. It doesn't mean I just believe with no evidence or, or no reason at all. In fact, the late Dallas Willard, who was a professor of philosophy at USC, writes, We can never understand the life of faith seen in Scripture or in serious Christian living unless we drop the idea of faith as a blind leap and understand, and this is key, and understand that faith is a commitment to action based upon knowledge of God and his ways. Let me say that again. Faith is a commitment to action based upon knowledge of God and his ways. And Dallas says, the romantic talk of leaping to which we have become accustomed actually amounts to leaping without faith. You see, the reason that faith in your bank or in your valet or in your dentist isn't a blind leap is that you know something about them. Your faith is reasonable based on on evidence of past performance, uh, of seeing them accomplish things faithfully in relationship with you. And this actually leads us to the third key thing we need to know about faith, and that is that it's grounded in a person. Remember, we are in this book, and this is chapter 11 of, of a sermon that the author has, been, has written down, but that he gave to this congregation. And in the first 10 chapters, it's hard to miss that the sermon has been about a real person, a Messiah who's come to rescue us, a person that we can trust, a person that we can know. And this is why the preacher makes it clear in in verse 6 where he says, It's without faith it's impossible to please him. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
You see, true faith requires that we believe that God exists and that he cares about us. And the preacher has made it very clear that there is tangible evidence, both in life and death of Jesus, of a real person. And you might hear Christians refer to their faith as a relationship with Jesus. And, and if you're like me, that phrase actually might seem kind of odd. What does it mean to have a relationship with, with, with Jesus? How can I have a relationship with the creator of the universe, someone I can't even see? But, but here's the crazy thing. We can. And, and not in the face of reason or evidence, but on the basis of reason and evidence. Through an act of faith, we trust on the solid foundation of what God has done in the past, we can look and see how he's revealed himself and trust his faithfulness. God has acted. He has revealed himself. He has given himself to us. And on the basis of that evidence, that reasonable evidence, we place our faith in him. And this simple but terrifying step of faith changes us. And the preacher spends the rest of chapter 11 reminding his congregation of how faith has changed the lives of those who have come before in order to urge them on in their own faith to not give up, to not abandon the one who's so utterly faithful to them. So we've looked at what faith is, but how does faith work? How does faith actually work out in life? And there, there, I think there's two main things to grasp here. One, faith enables us to see what we could not otherwise see. Faith allows us to see what we could otherwise never see. And then second, we'll look at that faith enables us to be what we could otherwise never be. So it allows us to see what we could not otherwise see and then to be what we could not otherwise be. So first, faith enables us to see what we could not otherwise see. Far from being blind, faith is actually a new way of seeing And we actually, we find this in the text in verses 2 and 3. It says, For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. And by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what's the significance of, of that verse? Well, the preacher tells us here that faith enables us to see that our world is more than mere materiality. It's more than just matter. It's more than just what we can touch and taste and feel. He says the world has been made out of what we cannot see. So he opens up to us the possibility that there is a world beyond just the hard physical matter and atoms and time and space. See, Christians are not merely materialists or physicalists. We think matter is really important. But we also believe it's not all that's there. You see, in a strictly materialist view of the world that argues that our lives are nothing more than the result of atoms randomly colliding and arranging to form us, that there's no rational ground for arguing for objective human rights for all people. So, for example, we may have a strong preference to say that, that generosity is better than stealing, but what way can we say that that's truly wrong? Well, you might come back and say, well, there's, it's evolutionary. Uh, it makes sense that, that a, a, a culture that works together is going to be better at surviving than one that, that works against itself. But even in that case, you say, but what if I don't want to work together for the culture? Who says I have to? I mean, it's just my demise, right? I just, I'm less likely to, to go on. But you can't say that it's, it's objectively wrong. 
In fact, every evolutionary advantage may incline us either towards stealing or generosity at a given point. And yet, we can't seem to escape the feeling that stealing is wrong apart from any consideration of, of evolutionary advantage or disadvantage. You see, faith enables us to make sense of this feeling that we can't seem to escape, that, that there really is a sense of generosity being right and stealing being wrong. Because at the universe, at the center of the universe, there's a God whose being is self-giving love and generosity. And therefore, as creatures made in his image, designed to reflect his character, generosity is the most natural thing for us. And stealing actually runs contrary to the very fabric and flow of the world that God has created. And the same is true with, with love, right? So if, if we are just materialists, then we have to say that, that love is nothing more than, than, than chemistry. That it's just a matter of, of the hormones firing between two people to perpetuate the species. But again, just try working that into a marriage proposal. Try, you don't see that on Hallmark greeting cards, right? That doesn't fit into a One Direction song. We feel deep down that love really is something more than just biological attraction aimed at sending the species on. Don't we? We, we, we say we, it has to be more than that. I, I don't want to even live in a world where, where it's just that. See, here again, materialism blinds us while faith actually allows us to, de- to see. Faith allows us to see a God who has revealed himself, who is triune, who is forever existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is a community of love, of unending passionate joy and delight and unrelenting to commitment to the good of the other. That's what shines brightly at the center of the universe. And so again, made in God's image, love makes sense and it's actually the most powerful reality in all the universe. Faith allows us to see and make sense of what we feel at the deepest level. It means something. So faith allows us to see what we could not otherwise see, but faith also allows us to be, to live like we could not otherwise live. And this is what the preacher shows us, really, this is what he's doing in the bulk of the chapter. He starts in verse 4 and then goes all the way through verse 40, just showing us this is what difference faith makes in the lives of people and while we certainly don't have time to, to walk through every single example that he lists here, I think there are just a few broad themes that go through many of the stories that he recounts here. And I just want to highlight a few of those. So in, in Noah and in, in Abraham and Rahab, we see that faith empowers us to overcome fear and risk. That faith empowers us to overcome fear and risk. If you look at verse 8, specifically in the story of Abraham, It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. See, God comes to Abraham and he tells him to leave his home and everything he knows. And and Abraham does it. He obeys by faith. Faith in a God who has called him. That that God will be faithful. Faith that even though he didn't know where he was going, he knew who he was going with. And in moments of risk and in fear, we often don't know the where or the what, but we can have faith and confidence because we know the who and how he's been faithful to us. We all long to be comfortable, 
But I think deep down we all know that comfort does not bring about the life that we truly long for. And that, that if pursued as the ultimate, that a life and end of comfort alone will lead to death. But you see, faith pushes out of us, pushes out of our places of comfort. And we never like going, but I think whenever we leave and we, we step out in those moments and we take the risk, we, we do the thing that we're fearful of, we're so thankful that we didn't stay. So, so what are the scary steps that you're being asked to take in your life? Growing faith in this sense, it's, it's like a muscle. It grows with exercises. And so what are the places where, where you sense that, I don't even know what that would look like in, in your life, but where are the places where you sense, I'm, I'm fearful to do this, but, but I, I think I'm supposed to. Where are those places? Are you stepping out? How are your faith muscles, if you will? How are they being exercised? But not only does, does faith push us out of our places of comfort, we also see that the same theme throughout this, this chapter, that, that faith empowers us to endure suffering. That faith also empowers us to endure suffering. And, and we see this in the account of Moses and, and the accounts of, of what the author calls the others, who he doesn't list by name, but who endured great suffering for God's sake at the end of the chapter. And so faith brings hope in the midst of life's difficulties. And again, if you look at verses 24 and 20, uh, through 26, we actually read these verses last week, but it's the story of Moses again. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated by the people, being mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, Moses had an opportunity because of the circumstances. He could have stayed in the palace. I mean, he had been adopted into Pharaoh's family, and yet he chose to endure suffering, to be mistreated, to identify with, with his people, with God's people, who were impressed and enslaved. So he was mistreated, he suffered, and yet he considered this suffering, this affliction, worth it because by faith he was able to celebrate the reality of future blessings in the present. Moses was looking toward the reward. Raymond uh, Edman once said, to never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. To never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. I bet there were moments in Moses' life when he wondered, maybe I should have just stayed in the palace because this is really difficult. But don't doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. This is the story of all of those, beginning in verse 5, who were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. So what are the painful hardships that you're facing? And where are you looking in those moments? Where is your hope grounded? And finally, faith empowers us to wait patiently. It, it gives us confidence while we wait for often long periods of, of God saying he's going to do something and then not seeing it fulfilled. I mean, in this text, we see Sarah waited decades for a baby. 
She waited decades to have a baby before God promised her one, and then decades after a promise. Joseph waited and waited, but he never returned to his homeland from Egypt. He's stuck in Egypt. He never got to go back. And in verse 22, it says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus with the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. If you were to go back into Genesis and and read about that moment, it, it says this, that Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones from here. Joseph, even then, he said, I know God is going to bring us out of this land. And, and I'm at the end of my life. I'm not going to see it, but I'm still waiting patiently. And I'm so confident that God is going to do this. I'm so confident that he's going to come through that I, promise me right now that you'll take my bones with you when you leave. By faith, they were able to celebrate the future blessings as present realities, even as they waited. So what long waits are you dealing with? Maybe it's a wait for a job and the right one hasn't come along yet. Maybe it's a waiting for a spouse, for a relationship. It's waiting for a child. Maybe the long wait you're dealing with is, is just trying to get through to the end of this message this morning. <laughs> and I promise we're almost there. Um, But there's one final key question we need to answer uh, before we do end. And that is, who does faith's work? Because after hearing all of this, you may be thinking, this still feels so big to me. It feels too big for me, Bill. And that's normal because it, it is too big for you. And at the end of the day, we don't just need an understanding of what faith is or, or of how faith works we actually need to rest in the one who does faith's work. Because when we look at this chapter that sometimes, and I don't think as wisely, but is sometimes referred to as the hall of faith, I think we, we could look at this and we say, I could never have enough faith. I could never have faith like the people in this passage, like these heroes of the faith. But let me let you in on a secret. These people aren't heroes. Look, look at this, this list again. Noah got drunk and passed out naked in his tent. Abraham lied about his wife being his wife not once but two times to save his own skin. When Sarah was first told she would bear a child, she laughed in disbelief. Moses turned down the job and wanted God to send someone else. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a doubter and an idol worshiper. He set up a shrine to another god. Barak was a, was a coward. David was a murderer and an adulterer. Samson was a hot-headed womanizer. I mean, you wouldn't want these people in your community group. And, and a lot of them <laughs> wouldn't pass the background check to serve with our kids downstairs. Um, Right? I mean, when you know these people's stories, these are not somehow these incredible heroes. And these people are listed here not because of their moral behavior or because of their great achievements. They're listed here because of one thing and one thing only, their faith. They believe what God said and he was pleased with them. 
So what does it take to please God? Faith. I, I just want you to listen to this. I, I, I ran across this in a book this week, and I thought it was so good. I just want, I want you to hear this. The author says, there's this incredible phrase in Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And they say, this statement shows us the path we must take. Only by trusting can we truly please God. If our primary motive is pleasing God, we will never please him enough, and we will never learn to trust Pleasing God is a good desire. It just can't be our primary motivation or it will imprison our hearts. If, if all we bring to God is our moral striving, we are back at the same lie that put us in need of salvation. We are stuck with our independent talents, longing, and resolve to make it happen. And this is, they say, this self-sufficient effort to assuage a distanced deity nauseates God. However, when our primary motive becomes trusting God, we suddenly discover there is nothing in the world that pleases him more. Until you trust God, nothing you do will please God. Until you trust God, nothing you do will please God. Faith does not require effort. In fact, it's, it's the abandoning of, of effort and the recognition that, that you are helpless It simply recognizes that it has nothing to offer to God and with open hands believes what God says and receives what he has to offer. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, It's easy to assume that being saved by faith means that God will now love us because of the depth of our repentance and faith. But that is once again to subtly make ourselves our own Savior rather than Jesus. Saving faith, he says, isn't a level of psychological certainty. It is an act of the will in which we rest in Jesus. We give ourselves wholly to him because he gave himself wholly for us. Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, is the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who has done faith's work. So rest in him. He has accomplished it all. Trust him and receive from him. Believe what he says about who you are. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have given us the, the gift of faith, that, that even that is not a work, that even we don't earn by somehow believing in you enough, and, and then you say, well, you've believed in me enough, so, so now I'll accept you. That, that all we do is we simply believe what you've said about us, that we just say, I, you're right, I am, am absolutely helpless, and then we receive with open hands from you. I pray that in this morning as we even transition to communion and if we stand at the table and receive the elements that we would have a posture of just receiving the gift of grace and faith in that moment. And we pray this in Jesus' name, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith for his glory. Amen. Um, every week here at Christ Community, we, in, in the Brookside campus, we celebrate communion. And during this time, we also have an opportunity for you uh, to pray with some uh, members of our congregation and staff. And so if there's something that in the midst of this message, you felt like, man, I, I'm really struggling with waiting for this, or I just feel burdened by that, I'd invite you just to spend time in the back. We have people who would love to pray with you during this time. Um, if, you're, if you're newer to Christ Community, I just want to tell you how communion works here. Um, we have four stations around the room. There's two here in the back and two up front, and this one here has gluten-free communion elements. You don't have to be a member of Christ Community. Um, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then you are welcome at his table. So come to his table in an act of, of trust and repentance and joy and receive from him 
the good news of life that has come through the forgiveness of sins by his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. So come when you're ready and receive by faith the grace that God has extended to you in Jesus.